Chapter thirty eight, part one of Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arlene Stebbins. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, volume two by Moncure Conway. Chapter thirty eight, part one. My first article in Fraser appeared in August 1864, and in the ten years following I worked pretty steadily for that magazine. My twenty-eight articles in that time were mainly on American subjects, though there were others, the most important of these being two on plant lore, mystic trees and flowers, and articles on demonology, made of four lectures given in the Royal Institution. I wrote also occasional articles for the Fortnightly Review and the Daily Morning Star. Subsequently I was invited by Mr. Walker of the Daily News to join his staff, and also wrote a good deal for the Pall Mall Gazette. All this, with my South Place discourses, my letters to American journals and magazines, and lectures in various halls about London and to philosophical societies in Hull, Newcastle-on-Tyne, Edinburgh, and other Scotch cities kept me busy. And yet I worked little in the evenings. We mingled a good deal in society and enjoyed the theatres. The manuscript of my first article in Fraser was sent by me to Carlyle, at his suggestion, and by him to the editor, James Anthony Froude. Thus began my long intimacy with Froude. This friendship made much of the charm of my London life. Nothing appeared lacking in Froude. Noble in appearance, a perfect gentleman in manners, simple and unassuming, frank and friendly, sweet and equable in disposition. He and his intellectual wife associated their house in Onslow Gardens with an elegant hospitality which those who enjoyed it can never forget. But if there was anything more attractive than an invitation to the Frudes, where we were sure to meet a fine literary circle, it was my afternoon walks with him. In every such confidential talk I was enriched by his knowledge, and the suggestiveness of his thoughts on subjects that most interested me. My own experiences gave me a sort of key to Froude, always conscious that my fruits had been stunted by the barren dogmatic field in which they were planted, by the years occupied with clearing away theologic rubbish, by the further years of struggle with slavery, and not yet mature enough to estimate the compensations of such experiences. I was able to recognize in Froude a spirit touched to finer issues than those that first laid their weird upon him. This man had nothing to do with the clerical life, nor with the cinders of tradition in which he delved with Dr. Newman. In The Spirit's Trials and The Lieutenant's Daughter, 1847, and in The Nemesis of Faith, 1849, was signaled a unique genius. Such a bold and original imagination had it reached its own fruitage, must have given to the world works incomparable as the novels of Balzac or Goethe. But Froude had his vulnerable point. He could not resist the bow and spear of a figure that captivated his imagination. As Newman had captured him at Oxford, Carlyle captured him in London. It was Carlyle who persuaded Froude to renounce imaginative work and write history. The surrender might not have been made but for the clamour with which the nemesis of faith was met by most of Froude's Oxonian friends, 
who for their unorthodoxy were paying a special tax to conventional morality. The book was burned at the close of a lecture by Professor Sewell in Exeter College, Oxford, of which College Froude was a fellow. He resigned immediately, and no voice was heard in his defence. So he left Oxford, to return no more, until he went there as a professor. The graphic portraiture in Nemesis of Dr. Newman's preaching at Oxford, and of the man himself, shows how Froude's heart had been almost torn out of him by parting from the great preacher whose beloved collaborator he had been. He was in a spiritual loneliness like that of the scholar in Nemesis. In that time of isolation, and amid reproaches for his novels, the one man who could be to him in his skepticism what Newman had been in his old faith was Carlyle. In boyhood Carlyle, because of his father's horror of fiction, read novels surreptitiously, but even rebellion does not free a man from parental fetters. Had it been otherwise, Carlyle would have held Froude to the form of expression which his genius had already selected. But as he discouraged the poetic form, he disliked also the form of fiction. Froude had indeed shown in the book that enjoyed the distinction of being the last book burned at Oxford, that the truth most needed in English literature could only be told in the form of fiction. Farewell, then, my genius. Yet a man's genius doesn't leave him so easily. Froude's History of England is one of the most brilliant works of his century. But even those who have no sympathy with the carp and criticisms upon it rarely fail to perceive that picturesque events and striking figures at times overpower the imagination of the author at the cost of historical judgment although the charm of the work may be heightened. All of his historical works involved original research. He would leave his magazine in Charles Kingsley's hands, and run off to Spain, or elsewhere at times, simply to examine one or two documents. But when the document appeared it was sometimes suspiciously alive and entertaining. If one takes account of that, more can be got from Froude than from any other historian of England. Personally, he was enigmatic to those who were best acquainted with him. "'Did you ever notice Mr. Froude's eyes?' said Mrs. Carlyle to me. "'Yes,' I replied. "'I have observed that they are brown and clear.' "'At times,' she said, "'his eyes appear to me like those of some wild but gentle animal.' Something prevented her at the moment from saying anything further. But she meant, I think, the serenity of his look which nothing seemed to disturb. He had humour, and at times smiled with his eyes, but however stormy the talk around him, his eyes expressed no emotion. He was intent, as if observing each one who spoke, rather than what was said. I never knew him to be vehement on any point. He impressed me as profoundly sceptical on all general subjects, but rather credulous concerning persons. Once, when we were talking of some recent works directed against Christianity, he said, I should as little think of attacking Christianity as of attacking a horse. It will continue so long as it is of practical utility to a large number. But there doesn't appear to be a single command ascribed to Christ that can be really obeyed to-day without qualification. He nevertheless had no belief that Christianity as a system would be supplanted by anything really better. What is called reform amounts, he said, to one rusty nail driving out another. Or if the driving nail be not rusty, it soon becomes so. 
At the time when the liberal and the conservative parties were competing as to which should be the first to enfranchise the masses, we were walking in Kew Gardens and talking about progress. We came upon a fine century plant which had mounted up high from joint to joint, and was near to its time of flowering. "'That plant,' said Froude, "'thinks it is making great progress. It has grown much this spring. Next week it will blossom.' and that will be the end of it. A week later its flower will be on the ground, and thenceforth no more growth or blossom. I fear, he added, that will be the result of what is now called political progress. Nevertheless, Froude sceptically balanced good and evil in every question. In a note to me he casually said, "'Unless I am mistaken, we are observing the death-struggle of the great anti-reform party in England.' Merchants and such like have become so rich by such bad means that they are in terror of the people, and the conflict which is only beginning will witness changes of which no one living can foresee the magnitude. Froude had a very high esteem and affection for Motley, and he repeatedly referred to the way in which Motley had changed front on the subject of secession in America. He declared that while the States were seceding, Motley, then in London, welcomed the separation— it would relieve the nation from complicity with the wrong and do away with the perpetual discord of the country and corruption of its politics. But the next time I had an opportunity to converse with Motley, and alluded to what he had said on the subject, he simply foamed at the mouth. He was all for uncompromising coercion and war. On thinking over the matter I felt myself more inclined to his original arguments than to the foam. Froude was generous in permitting me to write with perfect freedom in his magazine on American politics. In a note of December 23, 1864, concerning an article of mine already in the January Fraser, he says, I fear that on the slave question I agree more nearly with Carlyle than with you. At least I look at it, and have all my life looked at it, as a thing to be allowed to wear itself gradually away as civilization advances. You cannot treat an institution as old as mankind as a crime to be put out by force. If you do, you are unjust, and the injustice will recoil upon yourselves. You make wrong into right by treating it unfairly. You are playing over again on a new stage the old game of Philip II and Alva. You cannot be more persuaded of the wickedness of slavery than they were of the wickedness of heresy. The universe does not allow a section of mankind to inflict its views upon another at the point of the sword. If the sword is pressed into a service beyond the common service of ordinary average men, it will kill the man that uses it. You won't believe any of this, but you will find it to be so unless the laws under which we live in this world are suddenly altered. Froude did not change a word of my article, January 1865, but merely placed at the top by an American abolitionist. His phrase concerning the sword, it will kill the man that uses it, soon had a literal and fearful fulfillment. The death of President Lincoln rendered another paper necessary. A note came from Froude, April 28. Will you dine with me, alone, on Sunday evening, to talk over this terrible business? I shall want you to write something about it in June Fraser. When the devil is once born, there is no foreseeing what will happen. 
the only safe prophecy is an increase of madness and sorrow. I shall dine at seven forty-five. My house is in confusion as we are moving, but we can have two quiet rooms, and in the evening, if you like, we will go down to the Cosmopolitan Club. I had already been engaged to write some personal recollections of Lincoln for the June fortnightly, but there remained plenty to say. The article in Fraser duly appeared in June, by an American abolitionist. The task being difficult on account of my animadversions on the administration in the previous article. At the Cosmopolitan Club, a Sunday evening association, there was, after Lincoln's assassination, an exceptionally large gathering. The bullet of Wilkes Booth had destroyed the discord between parties. I was besieged with questions concerning President Andrew Johnson, and I shared the general apprehension that the wrath of America would be wasted on individual victims instead of on slavery. The feeling of England concerning the assassination is historic. The conversations in private were remarkable. Louis Blanc was astonished at the self-restraint of the American people. He said to me, if such a thing had happened in France, one half of the people would have tried to get the other half in prison before night. English Republicans were somewhat disturbed at discovering the extent of American loyalty to a person, especially as the President had for some time been regarded as reactionary. In one small dinner company, an eminent clergyman and author, whose name I withhold, said that, shocking as the event was, it could hardly be wondered at, as Abraham Lincoln was caught between contending principles and forces with which he was incompetent to deal. He could not go to the bottom of a thing either in the South or North. In this conflict of great forces involving all humanity, Lincoln was a Polonius behind the Arras, and suffered the penalty of being out of his place. The able gentleman who said this was not aware that among his listeners was an anti-slavery American, but the others knew and either on that account or because the opinion was unwelcome to all, the subject was dropped. But what a despot death is over the faculties of man! One week before I would have sanctioned that estimate of Lincoln, but now his words sounded like blasphemy. When the odious epoch of Reconstruction arrived, as Southerners said, when peace broke out, an irony some anti-slavery men and many slaves equally appreciated, Fruit and Carlyle urged on me the absurdity of enfranchising the Negroes. But, I ask, who else was there in the South to enfranchise? Were the whites to be now given the balance of power in the government they had for four years been trying to murder? Carlyle did not suggest any alternative to Negro enfranchisement. But Fruit argued that the rebellion was not begun in a spirit of treason to the United States. It was in defense of what certain states believed their constitutional rights. Personally, they were honorable people, still convinced that they were right, and the Northerners would find in the end that their union had a South on its hands like the Ireland that England had. In one of his many notes he says, Our Irish experience is that the people, the peasantry, whose manifest benefit our administration was calculated to produce, who were ground into slaves by the native landowners, yet preferred and still prefer the tyranny of their own people to English patronage. It was so before the church difficulties rose. It is so at this day in matters with which the church is not concerned. 
On the estates where the agents enforce English methods the land is improved. The rents are thirty per cent lower. The wages rise. The people are better housed and fed. Yet they shoot the agents and curse the landlord and believe themselves the most oppressed of mankind. The squireens who let them go their own dirty way, squat, propagate, subdivide, and multiply into dens of pauperism, may and do grind death-rents out of them, impound their cattle if they don't pay, even take their hunting-whips and thrash them like dogs, and they will go through fire and water for them, die for them if necessary, and think themselves honoured in doing it. Our Indian experience is exactly the same. That you have killed slavery is certain enough, that the negroes will remain devoted to their old masters, and serfs as much as the Irish peasants are serfs, that the poor whites will cast their lot with them to whom they have always looked up, seems to be equally certain. The masters may accept the results of the war and return quietly to the Union under such conditions as they can get, but that they will never forgive New England, and will watch for the time to be revenged under the forms of the Constitution, flows necessarily from the common laws of humanity. Do what you will, the whole South will be Democrat. The New England Republicans will again be in a minority, and secession next time may come from them. I thought of writing for Fraser an article on the American poetry inspired by the struggle with slavery, and submitted examples. After reading them, Froude wrote, The American originality in the author of Margaret I can enjoy, and admire most heartily, and so I can Lowell. But these new people fill their sails with the whirlwind of the last six years, and I am still heretic enough to regard all that not as a perennial trade-wind of humanity, but as a lone tornado generated by temporary electricity, an outburst not of intelligent, but of the brutal forces. Nothing violent is long-lived, and these all-absorbing, all-sweeping passions blaze like prairie grass, sweeting the ground indeed for a future crop, but not things in themselves proper to sympathize with. I do not recognize poetry in either of your friends except Howells and he is the one of the four who has caught the disease most mildly. Froude talked freely with me on religious topics. His brother William, the civil engineer, whom I sometimes met, maintained fraternal relations with Anthony, but remained loyal to Cardinal Newman. Carlyle did not like talk about theology, and his contempt for Cardinal Newman and Tractarianism sealed up a third of Froude's experiences. Francis William Newman's unimaginative way of dealing with Jesus repelled him. "'I heard Francis Newman preach this morning, at Voice's service,' Froude wrote me. "'The sermon will be printed, the more important parts of it being invectives against the moral character of the unfortunate son of David. It may be absurd to make an idol of a man and worship him, but that is no reason why, when we have left off worshipping, we should kick him out of doors.' Mr. Voysey's theism he found dreary and passionless. I tried to entice Froude into the committee of a contemplated liberal congress, but he was too skittish to be bridled. When the committee met at Huxley's house, Froude was expectedly not there. A note came explaining the cogent reasons for his absence. Huxley reports that your meeting was a very rational one. I was detained by the ice. It was the last good skating day which I could not abandon. 
We used to converse on theological points in a purely historical way. Concerning a theory of mine that Jesus had been wealthy and was of Hillel's college in Jerusalem, Froude wrote, I cannot quite reconcile myself to a rich Christ. Merivale insisted once to me that the disciples were Jews of good family and position. And when I said they were fishermen, Fishermen, he said, yes, like you and me. They had their villas on the lake and went out fishing for their amusement. He felt like you that they were cultivated and educated men, or they could not have done what they did. You and he may be right, and my hesitation may be only prejudice. Froude had discovered that he could best express his heresies as it is done in his short studies of great subjects. For the ordinary lay reader, the essays are instructive and amusing, but for those experienced in sceptical inquiry, these volumes abound in historic episodes which are far-reaching parables. His analyses of Lucian were outlined to me before publication, and he drew my attention to the correspondence of Lucian's situation, amid old superstitions withering, and new ones growing with the situation of scholars in our time. His Divus Caesar I regarded as one of the most pregnant works ever written. It has been on my mind since 1850, he wrote me, and belongs, as you see, to the old cycle of my ideas. Although Froude was so severe on the Irish in his writing, Ireland had a fascination for him. His fondness for sport and for wild beauty made him happy there. In 1873 he took for the summer the beautiful mansion of Lord Lansdowne at Derreen, and in August I passed a fortnight with him. I had been going over my old tracks during the Franco-German War, and Froude had engaged me to write an article about it. It appeared in Fraser, October 1873, under title of Ravelotte Revisited. Fortunately it was nearly finished in France, for the yachtings and excursions Froude had arranged in Ireland along with Lord Ducey and others left few hours for work. Meanwhile, some articles of Froude's on the Irish question had brought down demonstrations of wrath against him, though few in that region had genuine knowledge of the subject. Probably residing in Lansdowne House was Froude's real offence. After the Battle of the Boyne, the estate was taken from a recluse named McSweeney, and the Lansdownes bought it for a small sum. The family sent McSweeney a present of wine to soften the blow but he brought all the bottles before the house and smashed them on a rock. So a vendetta existed against the mansion itself. The country around Derin is populous with beings that do not exist. Spooks, fallen spirits, imps. The peasantry get little glimpse of actual nature and fact. I could never see any hope for the southern Irish masses but transplantation. Yet the Irish gentry are delightful and their ladies among the fairest and sweetest in the world. Mrs. John Ray, wife of the late Arctic explorer, and her sister Miss Thompson, a fine writer, I knew for many years. They are gentle and beautiful ladies. But one year they advised their own tenants in Ireland not to pay them any rent in order to make their common cause with the movement against English landlords. I met with a learned and titled Irish physician who was a materialist, when, however, I began to talk about the Banshee superstition, I found that old Celtic sentiment, which requires every famous family to have a preternatural servitor in its livery, was too strong for him. 
He told some banshee anecdotes that he called strange, but was contemptuous towards religious superstitions. End of chapter 38 Part 1